Many people have pointed out that this book is a book of promise. God, throughout the scriptures, makes promises to us of what he wants to do in our life if we submit. Now, one of the things that people oftentimes struggle with is worry. They are fearful. They realize that there is an enemy. They know that that enemy hates, derives pleasure from seeing others suffer. And therefore, it's not paranoia. It's legitimate. The enemy is fearful, but God makes a promise. And we see what that promise is to remove worry in the first verse we're going to look at this afternoon. Look with me to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13. He begins with a question. And who is the one? Now, many translations will say that will harm you. But again, it's that generic word that can do you evil. Who can bring evil into your life? Well, there's an enemy that can do that. But God has a solution. And if you follow that solution, you ought not worry. Because then worry is doubting God, and that puts you even in a worse situation. Who is the one that can do you evil? He says, if. And the implication is, if you do this, there is not one. Who is that one? There is not if. Good, you become an imitator of. Now, some Bibles will say, if you become zealous for good. But again, the best translation or the best manuscript has that term for imitating good. It's a word of practice. Once again, it's a word of behavior. There is safety in doing good. There is security in being in God's will. That's what he's promising us. And then he says something else. But if, if there's a situation that you suffer on account of righteousness, so you're doing that which is good, God's will. You are manifesting righteousness and you still suffer. Then what should you think? Boy, well, he tells us. He says, then we are blessed ones. So think twice before you say, God, I want to be blessed by you. Sometimes blessing comes in suffering for righteousness, because that releases a greater power. It changes the dynamic spiritually. When one suffers for righteousness, it is a kingdom manifestation. And the best example of that, obviously, is the cross. So we are called to be like him and suffer for righteousness and be individuals that are blessed. But, he says, the one that threatens, he means, do not be afraid, 
of that one who threatens you. There's no reason to think anything of significance about the one who aims threats that tries to cause you to fear. In fact, he says, do not fear that one who troubles you. God's got it under control. When you are in his will, God will fight your battles. God will move against the enemy. You focus on his instructions, his will. Leave the rest to God. He's able, and when he sees his, the scripture says, his hasidim. What's that? Those who are demonstrating God's grace in action. Now here's the problem. Many times we are taught that grace saves. That's a true statement. But grace is beyond just salvation. In fact, biblically, when we look at grace in context, we see that grace, yes, it saves, but it brings us into a commitment to God's will. And when we are demonstrating that commitment, there is no reason to fear. That one bothering us. Why? Verse 15. Because the Lord God, what's he going to do? I'm suffering for righteousness. There is one who is attacking me. God says, I'll use that, just what we saw last night. He says he's going to use it in order to sanctify your hearts. Now, sometimes change comes from suffering. I will never be able to see things in the way that God wants me to, that I need to, to be used by Him until I'm willing to suffer for Him. Suffering brings about a change of perspective. We've already mentioned. Paul says, suffering brings me into the fellowship with Messiah. Paul cherished that. Paul sought that out. Paul didn't run from suffering. And we see here that sanctification in your hearts, it brings about, keep reading in verse 15, it brings about us to be prepared for something. And what is that? But that we become prepared always in order to give a defense, an explanation to all people who are asking from us concerning the word. What word? That word that was to us in hope. Now, Peter has done something. We have seen that he's spoken of hope many times thus far in this epistle. He talked about holy wives that were motivated by hope. He talked about how hope gives us endurance. But hope also, when we demonstrate that hope in that testimony, it causes people to inquire. It causes them to see a difference in us. And he says, always be ready. Always be ready in order to give an explanation from those who ask concerning this hope and to do so with gentleness and respect. 
respecting others, but in the fear of the Lord. Having a good conscience, in order that, keep reading verse 16, in order that those who speak against you, and I see an end times con context for this, because we all know the verse that there's coming a time when the world will call that which is good evil and evil good. That's what he's referring to here. When we are behaving in a godly way, but there's going to be those that speak against us as we are evildoers and those that are insulting us because we remain steadfast in God's will. It says they are going to be brought to shame. When they insult this, this good conduct, your good conduct in Messiah. Now, what Peter is speaking about is this. When we are in Messiah, we are going to be living differently in this relationship with him, in obedience to him. The world is not going to like it, and the world is going to begin to speak against it and see that as evil. But in the end, if they don't change, all of that is going to be a cause for God to place shame, and that would be eternal shame upon them. And as he does that, he's going to be working very differently for us. Verse 17. This is the mindset that we need to have. For it is better. And this construction of this word means better and better and better. For it is better doing good and if God's will is for us to suffer, it's better to do good and suffer rather than doing evil. When it comes to suffering, we have that example. We have that perfect example, and that is Messiah. Notice where he switches to. Look at verse 18. He says, because Messiah, and this is this word I mentioned already, once and for all. Now, if you were listening, that term, once and all, speaks of sufficiency. He did it once because it was all sufficient. There does not need to be a repetition. What God did in Messiah, there is a maintaining of what he achieved. That's why we can have assurance. So, verse 18, we may suffer for righteousness. We know that Yeshua, he suffered for righteousness, and there was a reason. Because also Messiah, once and for all, concerning sin, we learned he never sinned. It was concerning your sin and mine. Concerning sin, he suffered. Who suffered? The righteous one, that's Messiah. In behalf of the unrighteous, that's you and me. So nothing that he did was in his best interest. He did it out of obedience to his father for the father's love for you and me. That father's character to want to bless, to see restoration. 
And we need to arm ourselves. That's a military term. With that same mindset, Peter said that earlier, that we are used for the spiritual benefit of other people. Messiah did that. We're called to do that. And that involves suffering. So Messiah, he suffered for sin, this righteous one, in behalf of the unrighteous. And they were told why. In order us to bring before God. And be very clear on this. There was no other way. If we who are sinful are going to be brought before God who is holy, it had to involve the cross. No other way. That's why he did it. Messiah, who equality with God was not something that he had to grasp. He is fully God. There is no benefit. But he did it not for a personal benefit, but out of obedience and out of love to his Father and for us. It says being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. So there was a change. Now it's a pattern. This gives us an example. Yes, he died, but it didn't harm anything to do with the spirituality. Nothing to do with what God is all about. And the resurrection manifests that to us in a very clear term. Now, we're in verse 18, and if we can summarize verse 18 with one word, it would be death. Messiah's death. Remember that. Because he wants to teach us something that is very important about our salvation experience to bring us into the fulfillment of God's will for our life. And it begins by death. Messiah, one of the things the scripture tells us, for example, in Luke's gospel, in his genealogy, Luke says that Messiah began his ministry at approximately the age of 30. Now, 30, biblically speaking, relates to death. We know that because when Miriam died in the wilderness, the children of Israel mourned her death for 30 days. Likewise, when Aaron died in the wilderness, the children of Israel mourned his death 30 days. When, when Judas betrayed Messiah, sold him over for death, he received 30 pieces of silver. So when it tells us that Yeshua began his ministry at the age of 30, it's telling us what his ministry is about. He came to minister, that is, to die. This is God's purpose for all of us. That's why when we look at Revelation 13, and it speaks about believers, the saints, it says that we are overcome by the enemy. That's not a problem. Why? Why is it not a problem for the enemy to war against us and defeat us? Because that's only in the physical. 
So what? Our hope is on the resurrection. Our physical defeat in the flesh. Messiah's death on the cross. It's not final. There's always that resurrection hope. This is where Peter's going to in this passage. So put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Look at verse 19. In which also the spirits in prison. Now, these spirits are those who died and descended into the place of the dead, known in Hebrew as Sheol. And we know biblically there are two compartments in Sheol. Now this all has to do up until Messiah's resurrection. In other words, his resurrection changes everything. Everything. But in verse 19, it speaks about those spirits that were in prison. Sheol. And he went and he proclaimed. Now, we know something. Verse 18, what's the key word? Death. What do you do with dead people? Bury them. Messiah was put in the tomb whereby he descended into the lower parts of the earth, that's what we're talking about, with a purpose. He proclaimed to both groups. We see this in Ephesians. He went to those that were in one compartment of Sheol, known in Greek by the term Hades, known in Hebrew with the term Gehinom, known in English with the term Hell. And he went and he proclaimed why they were there. He identified himself as the Redeemer. Now, another way that we can think of the Redeemer, Paul tells us in Galatians 3, verse 16, that the Redeemer is the seed of Abraham, Messiah. So he went there to say, you who are in hell had no faith like Abraham. Abraham believed that there was a Redeemer coming, that seed, that seed that brought about a kingdom change that fulfilled that Abrahamic covenant. That seed, Paul tells us, is Messiah. Abraham had belief in that, but those in hell did not. Then Ephesians tells us he went to Abraham's bosom. Why that term, Chek Avraham in Hebrew? Because Chek in Hebrew is this part of the body. It relates to the heart. Heart relates to thinking. Those who thought according to that same faith of Abraham. They believed that there was a redeemer, that seed coming that would bring about this redemptive hope. What's that redemptive hope? A kingdom experience. So they did not know who Messiah is. They knew that there was a Messiah. Therefore, he went and he proclaimed his identity. I am the one that you have been hoping for. And the scripture says he took captivity, those in Abraham's bosom, he took captive. Ultimately, after his resurrection, Matthew says they also resurrected. And they bore testimony 
of what they experience. But here, we're focusing on those who were in prison. That in that place of torment, of punishment. And it tells us, look at verse 20. The ones that he's emphasizing is not those in Abraham's bosom, but those who were in prison in hell. Because they were disobedient ones in the past when once the long-suffering of God waited, there's a delay. God suffered long. He did not bring about His judgment. And what are we talking about? It's an example. See, when we think of the days of Noah, and I'm speaking about the flood, Noah's flood is an image of God's judgment. Will God judge the world? Well, He has in the past, and He will again. Now, I'll do it differently. The first time He did with water, we know the second time He will with fire. So He gives an example. God is a wrathful God. He delayed for Noah to complete that ark. But in the days of Noah, he waited. There was a delay as he built the ark in which a few, let's be specific, that is eight souls. Why eight? Eight is a number of new beginnings. Eight is a number of transition, a kingdom transition. There was a newness that Noah's family brought about. So in which eight souls were saved, they were brought through the water. Now, what is water in this context? God used water. Why? The judgment. There's no debate about that. It rained, that flood came, and it was the source of God's judgment. But God is able to bring those who respond to his invitation, who repent and go in his direction, entered into that, that ark. God was able to bring them through judgment. That's what he does with his covenant people. Those who have faith, those who respond to the message of grace, he brings us through. This is all a description of deliverance. So we see in verse 18, death. Verse 19 and 20, there's an emphasis on being buried in the lower parts of the earth. And now look at the next verse. Verse 21. He says, which also, following this same symbol, which also for us is an example or pattern perhaps, is a better word. This account gives us a pattern now which saves. What saves? Baptism. But be careful. We need to understand baptism in what he's referring to. Now, let's go back again. Chapter 3, verse 18. What's the word? Death. Verses 19 and 20 relates to burial. And now he's telling us there's something that truly saves, and that is baptism, but he wants to clarify. Not 
the removal of the filth of the flesh. Now, remember, water was the source of God's judgment. He is not saying water baptism saves. Far from that. He's going to tell us what saves. What's the example? Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but rather, here's what saves. A good conscience. That word conscience can mean a godly understanding. The conscious works in our life to give us a proper understanding of God's revelation. So it's a right understanding of what? It says here. But rather, a good conscience concerning a profession unto God through, what's this profession about? This confession, we could say? Through the resurrection of Messiah Yeshua. Now, what are we talking about? What's verse 18? Death. 19 and 20, burial. Verse 21, what's emphasized here? Resurrection. The baptism that he's talking about is not our water baptism, but what our water baptism speaks of. It speaks of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. See, when Messiah came to the Jordan River to be baptized, John goes, wait, something's not right. I have need to be baptized by you. Messiah says, let it be for all righteousness. What does he mean? Well, he entered into the water. He came up from the water. And what happened? There was a voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Why? Why now? Why that statement? Yeshua was making a statement. He was saying to his father, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. When did he go to Jerusalem? Passover. Why? Passover is the festival of redemption. He says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. And I'm going to rise again. That's the baptism that this text is speaking of. Water baptism is a pattern, it demonstrates, it testifies to that, but the baptism that saves isn't about water. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah. In fact, if you look in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, he's speaking, and he speaks about a baptism that he has to be baptized with. Now, he's not talking about what took place in the Jordan. That's long gone. That's three years earlier. He's saying, how I am distressed until it's completed. What is he referring to? Going to Jerusalem. Death, burial, and resurrection. The cross, the burial, and ultimately, the resurrection. And this is what we're speaking about in verses 18 through 21. Look again at verse 21 which also is a pattern now for us. That which saves baptism. 
But it's not the removal of filth of the flesh, but rather a good understanding, a proper understanding, a response unto God that's based in and through the resurrection of Messiah Yeshua. And we just don't stop with the resurrection, but it continues to the ascension. Who is at the right hand of God? And then we're told that he goes into heaven and there the angels and the powers and the authorities are subject to him. Now, there's a, a principle of interpretation that Peter's making. Peter, a Jewish man, who would understand this? There's a, a basis for understanding things known in Judaism as cow bechomer. And what that means is cow is something that is light, and homer is something of greater significance. And here's what he's saying. If we read at the end of chapter 3 that angels, authorities, powers submit to Messiah. If they do it, the implication is Calve Homer. How much more so should you and me? If angels, powers, rulers submit to him, how can we, who are dirt, how can we not want to submit to him? In light of what he has done, that he went through that baptism. What baptism? His death, burial, and resurrection, which all occurred within a Passover context to teach us about redemption. Now, let me wrap up this session with one more thought. And that is, redemption has a very specific purpose. I've shared before, but it is foundational. You know, Messiah is spoken of in many ways. But a very prophetic name for Messiah is what the rabbis call his redemptive name, the redemptive term referring to Messiah. You know what that is? Emmanuel. Why? What does redemption and that name, Emmanuel, have in common? Well, Emmanuel means with us, God. And redemption is all about being with God. Redemption takes sinful people like you and me. And through redemption, we can have intimacy with God. And what we learned earlier is that there's no other way. No other way. He had to go to the cross. He had to go through that baptism. And it wasn't easy. What does the Messiah say in that passage that I referred to? He says, I have a baptism to go through. And how distressed I am until it's over. See, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing incorrect. When, when you hear 
you are going to suffer for your faith. That this grace has been given to you for that purpose. Now, grace is multifaceted. Many purposes. One is so that we can suffer faithfully. Bring honor and glory to God in the midst. And there's been numerous martyrs that gone through numerous atrocities. And the reason why they're called martyrs, you know, that word martyr comes from the Greek word, which means basically bearing testimony. And they did so in a God-honoring way. So I've received a lot of questions. You know, these things, they scare me. That's okay. Messiah himself, as an example to us, was distressed over what he was going to endure. But he did it faithfully. He did it in a way that honored his father. He completed the task. And this is what he tells us. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. He says, I'm going to give to you my peace. If you look within that context, he also says, I'm going to give you my spirit. You know the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Messiah. And that, that spirit of Messiah that brought him faithfully, quietly, submissively, in a glorious way to the cross, that he overcame all of that, that same spirit is in you and you and you if you are a believer. And that same spirit will lead you to walk faithfully. All you have to do is say yes to God. God, whatever it is, I'm trusting you. Your son's spirit is in me. You're never going to put me in a position, you've promised, more than I can stand when I stand with you. You will be faithful. You will bring honor. In the same way that supernaturally, remember what, what the scripture says? Messiah says, when you're brought before people to testify, don't, don't have a speech prepared. Don't, don't have something already because it will be given to you at that time. In that same way, when he calls you to suffer for your faith, that power to endure, that power to overcome, at that time, it will be given to you. You will bear testimony faithfully. But that fact does not remove the necessity to be in prayer concerning this. We are living in a most interesting time. In the same way that we learned that there were those prophets who searched diligently, who inquired faithfully about some sign, some hint of when this grace that God intended for you this generation, and since the cross, they were anxious to see it. We may be that generation that sees the events of the last days. You know, I realize that those who have gone before us who are in the kingdom of heaven, they'll have that front row seat to witness Messiah's glorious return to gather up the body of believers. 
But I don't want to be in the front row. I want to experience it. And we may have that opportunity. Things are changing rapidly. So many things that, that is going on in the world. I mean, let's just be honest. We look at it and we hear what's politically correct, what's popular, what's being taught at some of the best so-called institutions and universities in the world. It's ridiculous. I saw a PhD being interviewed by a congressional committee, and he was asked, how many genders are there? And he says he didn't know. Fact. Things are happening. They're crazy. But not for us. We know these times. They have been prophesied. They have been promised. It's time to lift up our head. To go to work and understand and perceive what's going on around us. Don't be discouraged. Don't be someone that's lamenting where things are going. Because they are moving at God's time, not the enemy. It is Yeshua that's going to one day break those seals. He's in control. That doesn't mean that he's the cause of all these things. But he's in control. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. It's his spirit that's within us. What we need to do is just focus on walking with him. And when we do so, we're taking each step closer and closer to being in the very glory of the living God. We are living in a marvelous time, an opportunity to walk in faithfulness. Help support God's people by purchasing items made by them. Merchandise with a meaning, products with a purpose. HolyLandMarketplace.com For more teachings, visit, support, or donate at TorahClass.com Join with us in worship and enjoy God's Word at Seat of Abraham Fellowship.